to Blazing History, where we are blazing through history one week at a time. Facebook.com slash Blazing Shows. That's B-L-A-I-S-I-N Shows. Same with Twitter. And my brand new website. Go check it out. BlazingShows.com. Hope all is well and that you've had a good week. As we're back to blazing through history one week at a time. On April 1st, 1984, singer Marvin Gaye was shot by his father. Here's a tribute from Entertainment Tonight broadcast from April 2nd of 1984. 69-year-old Marvin Gaye Sr. was taken to police headquarters in downtown Los Angeles last night after being booked on suspicion of murder in the death of his son. Marvin Gaye was visiting his parents' home here in Los Angeles. There was a family argument. The singer was shot in the chest. A little while later, Marvin Gaye died. Marvin Gaye Sr. armed himself with a handgun and fired uh, several shots, wounding uh, Marvin Gaye Jr. Marvin Gaye Jr. was taken to California Hospital where he was pronounced dead from gunshot wounds at 1 o'clock this afternoon. What can I say? It is a tragedy. I love Marvin and... Uh... I'm very sorry what happened. Family and friends were shocked and wept openly in the wake of the killing. And a crowd gathered in front of the gay home. Police say the singer and his father started arguing over insurance matters Saturday night, resuming the argument Sunday. Marvin Gaye Sr. is expected to be arraigned sometime this week. Sexual healing brought Marvin Gaye back to the top after years of personal and professional problems. He risked everything to make it work. Had it not been received the way it was, I imagine I would have been through in this business as recording on it. The risk paid off. The song became a major hit and won him his first two Grammy Awards. Pride and Joy in 1963 brought him his first big national audience. Before that, most of his experience had been singing in the choir of his father's church in Washington, D.C., and as a studio drummer and singer. His career took off during the 60s, and in 1968, I Heard It Through the Grapevine became his biggest hit. professional highs were followed by personal lows, two marriages, drug problems, and finally bankruptcy and exile in Europe. It appeared for a while that his career was over, but Gay believed otherwise. My blessings actually outweigh all of the um, negative things that have, uh, that have occurred in my life, and it's that fact that probably makes me happiest of all. I know somebody up there loves me. Marvin Gaye would have been 45 years old today. Later in the show, we'll have tributes from some of his friends and a look at one of Marvin Gaye's biggest hits. Marvin Gaye Jr. was just 44 years old when he was shot by his father. Pope John Paul II died on April 2nd, 2005. Rome reports in English recaps the final hours. This was the last time John Paul II appeared before St. Peter's Square. It was Wednesday, March 30, 2005. He was very weak and unable to speak. Two months earlier, he had endured a tracheotomy, and that was followed by two serious infections. Locals knew his hours were numbered, 
Many decided to spend the night outdoors in St. Peter's Square to show support. The end was imminent. Inside his room, the Pope said goodbye to his closest confidants. It was a silent farewell. There was no need for words. He looked at us in the eyes. Everything was already said. It wasn't necessary to try to say anything. The next day, less than 24 hours later, he died. On the night of April 2nd, Faithful prayed the rosary under the Pope's window in St. Peter's Square. The first official confirmation came just a few minutes later. Que il nostro silenzio orante accompagni questi primi momenti dell'incontro del Santo Padre Giovanni Paolo II con Cristo nel cielo. And that's when John Paul II received his first tribute after his death, an endless applause. La primera oración. The first prayer recited in the room at the time of his death was not the prayer the church usually does, which is a prayer for the soul's salvation. No, it was a prayer of gratitude. Naturally, not because of his passing, but because of his rich life that ended at that historical moment. The next morning, his remains were taken to the Apostolic Palace so that members of the Roman Curia could pay their respects. A day later, his body was transferred to St. Peter's Basilica. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims came to give thanks and to say farewell. Less than 24 hours before his death, people began to arrive at St. Peter's Square. It continued to fill up over the following days. At first, Romans came, then from all over Italy. Then people from throughout Europe and around the world came in those days before the funeral and burial of John Paul II. The Pope's main collaborator, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, celebrated the funeral mass in front of dozens of world leaders. Strong winds blowing through St. Peter's Square added to the ceremony's sad mourning. At the end of the mass, hundreds began asking, would John Paul II be declared a saint? Well, time gave them their answer. Pope John Paul II, 84 years old. On April 3, 1996, the search for one of the most famous criminals in history ended. We have more from that day's ABC News broadcast. After 17 years of looking, today FBI agents think they may have finally had a look at the Unabomber. Late this afternoon, Ted Kaczynski was taken from his backwoods cabin, leaving folks in the nearby town of Lincoln stunned. He was just a real quiet guy. Um, you know, he came to town, he never bothered anybody, he never gave anybody a hard time, he was never in trouble, um, never was at the bars, um, just a real quiet guy. And, um, you know, if you had a conversation, it was a real intelligent conversation with him. You know, he's just, just not the guy that I would think would be the Unabomber. Locals say Kaczynski has lived here for about 18 years in his cabin down a dirt road. Today, the FBI sealed the area off as they searched his property. Those who have gone to his place say it has no indoor plumbing, no electricity, that he grew his own vegetables, and had scores of books. Gene Udarian went there as a census taker and found a pleasant but reserved man. Reclusive, hermit type, you know. Uh, he didn't go out of his way to make friends or anything like that, you know. It wasn't a, what you would call a social person. 
When he came to town, always alone, Kaczynski, who did not own a car, rode a bicycle. One of his favorite stops, the library. There, people say, he told them he was a Vietnam veteran living on a pension. Former librarian Beverly Coleman says he often wore army green or camouflage clothing and had unusual taste. You know, I mean, he didn't read like the normal junk the rest of us read. He, he had to order in the books? Oh, yeah. Most generally, you had to order anything in for him because what he wanted was so off the wall. And a lot of stuff he wanted was out of print for years. You know, he just, he's very, very well read man, very educated man. The other place he was frequently seen, the post office. I've seen him come out of the post office. I've seen him mail things, you know, just being in there. Like letters or packages? Oh, I don't know. I, he, we all go to the post office, everybody. <laughs> Nobody gets their mail delivered to him, so um, I don't think, I don't ever remember packages or anything. At this hour, Kaczynski is believed to be in Helena, where he was taken by the FBI. At last report, in a small windowless office on the third floor of a building that the FBI keeps in this town. Koki? Tom, what happens tomorrow in Helena? It's hard to say what's going to happen. Right now, at last report, he has not been charged with anything. Now, if he is charged, he would be arraigned tomorrow in Helena. But at this moment, the FBI is looking at things. A lot of people here are looking at things and wondering just that very thing. What's going to happen with Ted Kaczynski tomorrow? Thanks, Tom Foreman in Montana. And now from San Francisco at our station, KGO-TV, ABC's chief investigative reporter, Brian Ross. Brian, what brought the investigators to this point? Finally a suspect. Well, Koki, it really was a phone tip that a lawyer for the Kaczynski family called in, a tip that ironically was almost ignored and almost put in sort of not the A file, but the B file. But one agent here in San Francisco took the time and began to work it. The problem was that they had thought all along the suspect was somebody who lived in the San Francisco area. And when it first came in as somebody in Montana, it was ignored. But as they looked closer and closer at this man, they found he began to fit the profile. In particular, the fact that he, in the mid-80s, worked in the Salt Lake City area as a construction worker, an area where one bomb was mailed and another bomb went off. Now, tomorrow's New York Times is reporting that the FBI has fingerprints, typewriter imprints, uh, unexploded devices, and interestingly, DNA analysis of his saliva from the stamps on the postage. Is, have you heard those reports, and, and what are they saying about them? Uh, that's right, Koki. In fact, ABC News has learned tonight that in the uh, raid today and the search warrant that went uh, down at his uh, home, they're looking for a typewriter, certain kinds of stamps, a particular kind of blue and red stripe mailing label, and uh, also a certain kind of uh, pipe uh, bomb and an explosive filler. Uh, with the stamps, they hope they can do a DNA kind of test that would uh, match him up. Those are the things they need to actually have a case that would stand up in court. It's one thing to call him a suspect. It's another to prove it in front of a jury. Ted Kaczynski was sentenced to life in prison without parole on January 22, 1998. He pled guilty to all federal charges. On April 4, 1968, a civil rights icon was assassinated. Good evening. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 39 years old and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the United States was assassinated in Memphis tonight. A sniper's bullet cut down Dr. King as he stood on a hotel balcony in Memphis. Within an hour, Dr. King was dead. That happened at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. The nation was shocked. President Johnson expressed horror and then postponed his trip to Hawaii until tomorrow. We're going to go to Memphis now and talk to ABC's Tom Gerald, who is on the scene. 
Here in Memphis, of course, a great deal of shock, a great deal of confusion, and a great deal of uh, uh, some violence. I can't say a great deal because I don't really know. I do know that uh, police are very concerned that the fire department are, is moving uh, units around the streets and that uh, there is some rock throwing and some fires reported and some shooting. The full extent of, at, at this time from this vantage point can't be uh, assessed. Uh, the full curfew has been imposed on the streets of Memphis. Everyone except emergency vehicles uh, are being cleared from the streets. The National Guard, which had been on duty here uh, up until late last night, they have been recalled to duty and uh, are being put on the streets of Memphis right away. Of course, a great deal of confusion and chaos uh, resulting from the announcement here that Dr. King had died. It was a very great shock for something like this to happen. The uh, shooting occurred at the Lorraine Motel. It was a favorite place for civil rights leaders and for Negro businessmen to stay uh, here in Memphis. I believe we have some film now, Bob, if we can take a look at that. This is where the shooting occurred tonight, where Dr. King was killed. The Lorraine Motel is a favorite place for Negro leaders to stay while in Memphis. It's a very nice, new, modern motel. He was on the second floor balcony, out, standing exactly where these two officers are, talking with some of his aides at the time of the shooting. The uh, scene immediately became confused. Officers ran forward and, and uh, attempted to secure the area. The shot apparently came from an apartment building directly across the street. The uh, members of Dr. King's staff were there discussing a mass rally, which was planned for tonight. They said that uh, suddenly there was a sound that sounded faintly like a firecracker or something, and, and uh, then he was shot. He was talking about the program for tonight's uh, mass rally. Yeah, yeah. And he had asked you to play a special tune. Yes, yeah. Uh -huh. Did he say anything after he was shot? Could you tell how seriously he was wounded? He just said, oh, and it knocked him back, you know, off his feet. After that, was anything said at all? Nothing but, oh, and uh, we, we all, and Reverend Jackson, he yelled back to Dr. King. We all hollered, everybody hollered, after the shooting, you know. I was standing kind of sideways. I really didn't have my back to the, where the shot came from. And when I turned all around, we saw the sheriff or the police up on the hill. That was the uh, musical director for Dr. King's group, Ben Branch. He was standing alongside Dr. King uh, when the shot came that, that killed uh, Dr. King. In fact, Dr. King was discussing tonight's musical program with Ben Branch at the very moment when the shot was fired. The shot, as I say, apparently came from a, an apartment building which uh, had a number of floors and overlooked the motel. It was a very clear shot uh, to the place where Dr. King was standing on the balcony discussing the situation uh, with his aides. Uh, the police here in Memphis immediately issued a bulletin for a young white man dressed in dark clothes who dashed out of that building across the street. Uh, he dropped a Browning automatic rifle, which was fitted with a scope on the sidewalk, and then he fled. Uh, we don't have any late information from police headquarters here in Memphis because uh, communications channels at the moment are completely clogged with emergency calls. We don't know if anyone has been apprehended, although we understand that some suspects may be being questioned uh, at police headquarters. James Earl Ray was convicted of assassinating Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. On April 5th, 1984, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar set a record which stands today. 
Here's how it sounded, courtesy of Lakers Radio. Lakers have a big lead with nine and a half to play, and Kareem needing one point. He's climbed the mountain. He's starting to pitch camp. He swings left. He shoots right. It's no good from 17. The rebound he eaten the green. Green in the front court. Green stops and brings it over to Anderson. 18-footer. Ain't we got fun? Rebound hit by Kareem Hold to Magic. Hold it Magic up. in the front court. Slow it Magic down, down the middle. Magic That's look. It, it, it says to Kareem, get come on down here, big fella. Put in a chair. The crowd stands for Kareem to get the ball. Everybody's waving their arms. It's in the Kareem. Kareem swing left. Right hand, 12-footer. tell the words. They love their captain. They love their leader. And suffice to say, ladies and gentlemen, the new king of scoring has ascended his throne. His mama, his father. What an emotional moment. And the kind of a shot that I dreamed about for three weeks that he would make me the hook shot. I am not sure who gave him the assist. Or was it a rebound? He had the ball and dribbled around, around a little bit in there. Well, then there I'm not sure. I don't think there's an assist on the play. They're going to stop the game temporarily. And it's great that the Lakers have this big 19-point lead because I don't think it's going to have an effect upon the outcome this stoppage. I thought I saw Kareem go for one of his eyes, maybe to wipe away a tear. That is the commissioner of the NBA, David Stern. You are one of the greatest athletes ever to play our game. On behalf of the millions of fans who you have thrilled for 15 years, and as a fan myself, it is my great honor and pleasure to congratulate you on becoming the highest scorer in the history of the National There will never be a player quite like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. We stay on the basketball court. Michael Jordan, widely considered the greatest player of all time, was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame on April 6th, 2009. I get to the Bulls, which I was very proud that at the time Jerry Reinsdorf didn't own the team. Uh, it was another organization, and Rob Thorne drafted me. Kevin Lockett was my first coach. Kevin used to take practices and put me in starting five and we you know he'd make it a competitive thing where the losing team have to run so now we I'm on the winning team and halfway in the game halfway in the situation he would switch me to the losing team so I, I, I take that as a competitive thing by you trying to test me and by nine times out of ten the second team would come back and win no matter what he did so I appreciate Kevin Lockett for giving me that challenge you know providing that type of fire within me he threw another log on that fire for me. Jerry Reinsdorf, I mean, what else can I say? The next year I come back, I broke my foot, I was out for 65 games, and when I came back, I wanted to play, 
You know, he and the doctors, they came up with this whole theory that you can only play seven minutes a game, but I'm practicing two hours a day. You know, I'm saying, well, I don't think, I don't, I don't agree with that math, you know. And back then, it was about whoever had the worst record get the most balls and the ping-pong balls, and, you know, you can decide what pick you're going to have. But I didn't care about that. I just wanted to win. I wanted to make the playoffs. You know, I wanted to keep that, that energy going in Chicago. So I had to go in his office and sit down with him. And I said, Jerry, you know, I feel like I should play more than 14 minutes. I'm practicing two hours. He says, uh, MJ, I think I have to protect the long term of investment that we've invested in you. And I said, Jerry, I, see, I really think I should be able to play. He said, let me ask you this. He said, if you had a headache, and you know, at that time, it was about 10% chance that I can re-injure my, my ankle or my foot. He says, if you have a headache and you got a, 10 tablets, and one of them is coated with cyanide, would you take the Tylenol? And I looked at him, I said, how bad is the headache? Depending on how bad the headache. Jerry looked at me and said, you okay? I guess that's a good answer. You can go back and play. He let me allow to go back and play. And you know, Jerry provided a lot of different obstacles for me, but at the same time, the guy gave me an opportunity to perform at the highest level in terms of basketball. And the, the Bulls, the whole Bulls, Bulls organization, you know, they did a, a great justice for me and for all my teammates. Believe me, I had a lot of teammates over the 14 years that I played for the Bulls. And, you know, I respected each and every one of them. I just wanted to win, you know, no matter how you look at it. And then along came Doug Collins, who was caught in the whole mix of this, Jerry Krause and, and uh, Jerry Reinsdorf. And, you know, at the same time, he, you know, when I was trying to play in the summertime, he said, well, you know, you're a part of the, the organization, the organization said you can't play in the summertime. I said, Doug, you hadn't read the fine print in my contract. In my contract, said I had the love of the game clause. That means I can play anytime I want, any place I want. <laughs> and Doug looked at me and said, yeah, you're right, you're right. And that's how we became, you know, a little closer in terms of Doug Collins and myself. And, you know, Jerry Krause is right there, and Jerry's not here. Obviously, I don't, you know, I don't know who inv invited him. I didn't, but uh, uh, I hope he understands. I hope he understands it, it goes a long way, and he was a very competitive person. I was a very competitive person. He said, organization wins championships. I said, I didn't see organization playing with the flu in Utah. I didn't see him playing with, you know, with the bad ankle. Uh, granted, granted, I think organization put together teams, but at the end of the day, the teams got to go out and play. You know? So in essence, I think the players win the championship. And the organization has something to do with it, don't get me wrong. But don't try to put the organization above the players because at the end of the day, the players still got to go out there and perform. You guys got to pay us, but I still got to go out and play. It feels like forever ago when The Last Dance was released. Did you ever watch the documentary? If you did, would love to hear what you think. As we wrap up this show by paying tribute to longtime CBS journalist Mike Wallace. Down through history, various political and philosophical movements have sprung up, but most of them have died. Some, however, like democracy or communism, take hold and affect the entire world. Here in the United States, perhaps the most challenging and unusual new philosophy has been forged by a novelist, Ayn Rand. Ms. Rand's point of view is still comparatively unknown in America, but if it ever did take hold, it would revolutionize our lives. And Ayn, to begin with, I wonder if I can ask you to capsulize, I know this is difficult, can I ask you to capsulize your philosophy? What uh, is Randism? Uh, 
first of all, I do not call it Randism, and I don't like that name. All I right. call it objectivism. All right. Meaning a philosophy based on objective reality. Now, let me explain it as briefly as I can. First, my philosophy is based on the concept that reality exists as an objective absolute. That man's mind, reason, is his means of perceiving it. And that man needs a rational morality. I am primarily the creator of a new code of morality which has so far been believed impossible, namely a morality not based on faith. On faith. Not on faith, not on arbitrary whim, not on emotion, not on arbitrary edict, mystical or social, but on reason, a morality which can be proved by means of logic, which can be demonstrated to be true and necessary. All right, all right. Now, may I define what my morality is? All right. Because this is merely an introduction. My morality is based on man's life as a standard of value. And since man's mind is his basic means of survival, I hold that if man wants to live on earth and to live as a human being, he has to hold reason as an absolute, by which I mean that he has to hold reason as his only guide to action and that he must live by the independent judgment of his own mind, that his highest moral purpose is the achievement of his own happiness and that he must not force other people nor accept their right to force him, that each man must live as an end in himself and follow his own rational self-interest. May uh, I interrupt now? You may. Because you bring, you, you put this philosophy to work in your novel Atlas Shrugged. That's right. You demonstrate it in, in human terms in your novel Atlas Shrugged. And let me start by quoting from a review of this novel Atlas Shrugged that appeared in Newsweek. It said that you are out to destroy Almost every edifice in the contemporary American way of life, our Judeo-Christian religion, our modified government-regulated capitalism, our rule by the majority will. Other reviews have said that you scorn churches and the concept of God. Are these accurate criticisms? Uh, yes. I agree with the facts, but not the estimate of this criticism. Namely, if I am challenging the base of all these institutions, I'm challenging the moral code of altruism, the precept that man's moral duty is to live for others, that man must sacrifice himself to others, which is the present-day morality. What do you Since mean by I sacrifice himself for others? This, now we're moment. getting to the point. One moment. Since I'm challenging the base, I necessarily would challenge the institutions you name, which are a result of that morality. All right. And now what is self-sacrifice? Yes, what is self-sacrifice? You say that you do not like the altruism by which we live. You, you like a certain kind of Ayn Randist selfishness. I uh, would say that I don't like is too weak a word. I consider it evil. And uh, self-sacrifice is the precept that man needs to serve others in order to justify his existence, that his moral duty is to serve others. That is what most people believe today. He died on April 7th, 2012. Imagine if he were still alive today, questioning politicians and the like. 
Given everything that's going on today, that's all the time we have. Thanks for listening to Blazing History, blazing through history one week at a time. What do you think? Let me know at facebook.com slash shows. That's B-L-A-I-S-I-N shows. On Twitter at shows, Or email me shows at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts or on my website blazingshows.com. To quote the late Franklin D. Roosevelt, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Take care of yourself and we'll talk again next week. On Blaze in History, I'm Blaze Bryant.